And folks, we're back after a brief hiatus. Welcome back to the latest Digital CXO podcast. I'm your host, Mike Bizard, and my guest today is once again, Alan Schimmel, CEO of TechStrong Group, publisher of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, Container Journal, TechStrong TV, and of course, Digital CXO. Alan, how you doing? Good, Mike. It's good to see you. Well, I'll hear you anyway. There is, as always, a lot of talk about citizen developers. And on one hand, some people believe that this is mythical in the sense that there aren't really that many of them out there and they have issues. But there are others that say that they are eventually going to be critical to this whole digital business transformation initiative. But it seems like we're asking maybe a lot of people who are essentially power users to kind of build applications that are secure or will scale and are frankly, designed to be used by others. So my question to you is, what's your take on this whole citizen developer phenomenon as it appears, as at least as it applies to low-code and no-code tools? So let me start off by giving you a little advice. When you, when you go talk to people about this, duck. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> then there's fighting words to a lot of people. I didn't realize this. I went in face first and, and took a pounding. Um, here, here's the thing. There's no denying that the low-code, no-code movement is real, that it's transforming and making app development, rapid app development, BPA, a lot faster and easier. But in my mind, the whole low-code, no-code thing has hit a fork in the road. On one end is making not so much no-code, though there's a little no-code, but let's call it the low-code tools that allow professional developers to rapidly develop applications. And some of those applications are very sophisticated. You know, you would never know they were made with low-code, no-code tools. The other fork, and I think it's primarily at this point more of a no-code, is empowering citizen developers. And like you said, they're power users. We used to call them power users. And I think the, the insecurity thing is a myth. I think the, the best no-code platforms today develop pretty tight apps and, and you know with security built in. But the sophistication of those apps may be lacking or wanting. Now, if you just need something down and dirty and you want to get it done quick or even just a, some sort of MVP until your development team can get something done, I think that they're great tools for the citizen developer, right? If you're in a sales team or a business team or HR, you know, a non-IT department, getting your IT team and your developer team to develop an application for you, you're better off buying lottery tickets. To be able to just get something done quickly, if it's relatively simple, it's an amazing, empowering technology. And the best of the no-code tools are doing it. Like I said, it is a religious war. I think a lot of people look down their nose at those kinds of tools and those kinds of apps. In today's world where, you know, the coding is at a premium, if you could get something done quick without having to, you know, put it through your development cycles, more power to you. What do you think should be the relationship between the citizen developers and the DevOps teams then? Or is there 
do I just throw them all in a room and lock the door and hope it gets sorted out? Or is there a, a smarter way to think about this? That's one way for population control. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> whoever comes out standing. But um, I think that a lot of the citizen developer stuff almost becomes like shadowing, like shadow IT stuff. And at some point, your DevOps teams or your ops teams or SREs become aware of something you got running that you developed down and dirty or, and I don't want to use down and dirty is a bad word that you develop in a citizen developer, no code environment. I think by their very nature though, the DevOps teams, by the very nature of these citizen developer applications, the DevOps teams are the last to know. And, and when they do, they get pissed because they're the last to know, but it's also, I just think part of the nature of the beast. I think maybe we could have a more, rational approach maybe where we're kind of putting everybody together and say, look, the DevOps team is your job is to enable these people and you should get in front of them and have this conversation yeah, before they no, start going. You know, Mike, this reminds me of the security developer thing. The security people say those developers don't care about security. And the developer people say the security team just says no. The DevOps team says, you're going to let these hacks build some application. It's going to be insecure. It's not going to scale, and it's terrible. And the other side is, look, I don't have six months and three dev cycles to wait for you. I need this working today, and I can get something up and running in 24 hours. Unless you can, too, I don't. I'm doing it. You know, so does Muhammad go to the mountain, or does the mountain come to Muhammad, or do they just stay where they are? I think we'll see how this develops, but eventually I'm hoping that all this will come together. That said, we are starting to see more reports about digital initiatives failing, including one where is on digital CXO talking about insurers are having issues. And it yeah. seems like um, we're, the issue, and maybe it's not new news, but it seems like you know once again, we're not having that feedback loop where somebody has an idea Somebody goes, implements it, and then it just all falls apart. And we've seen this over the years with traditional application development, but is it just a bigger spotlight because there's more at stake now than before? Well, now we call it a digital transformation failure, right? Where before we just said, ah, it didn't work out so good. But, you know, I think the underlying causes are basically the same. Here's the deal. Number one. IT and, and security and, you know, these technical, they we all suffer from shiny trinket syndrome, right? Everybody wants to do the hot new thing. And digital transformation is a hot new thing. And we're going to do a digital initiative. So we're going to implement DevOps principles. And we, we've got agile and we're this and we're that. A lot of it's lip service. And they put 90% of their resources in at that, you know, at the five yard line. But then there's not enough steam and gas to do the other 95 yards to the end zone. And, and so a lot of them are doomed. They're doomed before they start because they're not resourced for the long term. They're not set up to scale. They're not well thought out. As we say in Vegas, right, most of these are a fine beginning, but they, they quickly get off track after that. All these resources, all this energy into launching the initiative with lofty end goals and great metrics they want to get to. But the devil's in the details. And a lot of times those details are half-baked. 
you can almost look at some of these initiatives before they start and tell you, look, this isn't going to work. And I, I think we suffer from that in, the, in this industry, right? But the bad news, let me just carry this through. The bad news is then you get tagged. Ah, that, that stuff don't work. That stuff, we, we saw it, we see it. We saw it with DevOps, right? Maybe three, four years ago, everybody started saying, hey, this DevOps stuff don't work. It's not, I'm not getting the kind of returns I thought I'd be getting. I was promised that the consultants told me I'd get. This agile, agile doesn't work. I die better off going back to waterfall. It's, you know, we're a bunch of grumpy old men sometimes in this business. And I think it's just part of the, the fabric. I think we should assume that there's going to be a level of failure and that, you know, these things are iterative and we just kind of have to keep plowing ahead. I think the things that we deem our successes today didn't happen overnight. And maybe, you know, somebody else looks at that thing and goes, oh, my God, we got to do something tomorrow without realizing, you know, how much effort went into that thing they're trying to copy or emulate or admire. I, I agree with you. Andrew. Well, like I said, you know, it's a prevention's worth a pound of cure with these things, Mike. It, it's all about getting in front of it. Speaking of things that you, yep. might want to, you might want to get in front of, you know, there's this lot of debate right now about this whole Web3 thing and the decentralization mm. of data and the move away from Web 2.0. And in your mind, is this stuff for real or is this kind of wishful thinking and somebody's looking for something interesting to do with blockchain? This is a tough one for me, right? So look, Mike, you and I have been through a few cycles, right? You know, and you, you bandy about Web 2.0 like it's great, and I remember that, and it, it, so much of this stuff. My, my feeling is inside of these things is always a kernel of truth, no pun intended, right? So there is, I think, blockchain and blockchain technology bring some real use cases to the table that really makes sense. Um, is it going to change everything? No. But, but let, me, let me say this to you about it, Mike. In my career, in my lifetime in, in technology, we have seen some definitive uh, eras, right, and boundary points, Right, sort of dinosaurs, the death of dinosaurs, the rise of mammals, those kinds of things. So when I first got into computers, the PC had just come out, really. Right, I, I'm, I'm not going to count when I was in school punching, punching cards, right? But when I first came into the workforce, PCs had come out, IBM, Compaq, and those. Actually, before that, it was the Wang machines. But anyway, dumb terminals. So PCs come out. And we, you know, the whole Novell network thing. And then the rise of Windows and, and, and the Windows network. And then, of course, TCP IP, which is the, the backbone of the internet, right? Really kind of just changed the game. The rise of the internet in the 90s, the commercial internet in the mid-90s. And then the cloud in 2004 and five, around there. And, you know, it's taken us maybe 15 years to kind of really integrate that none of the old ones go away by the way for the most part they're all still hanging there right i think we're looking at a new boundary point a new era a new eon epoch whatever you want to call it where we're in a post cloud so the cloud's not going away the cloud's really important 
multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, the whole thing. But we're also now seeing the rise of the edge, and we're seeing the rise of things, things connected to the internet. There's going to be 50 plus billion things connected to the internet within the next five to seven years. 50, remember, there's six or seven billion people in the world. 50 billion things connected to the internet. So that's something like seven things for every single person on earth, whether they're connected there or not. Um, you're going to need, and security is going to be a paramount concern here, right? Moving data and information from endpoint to edge to cloud to data center to back, the analysis, you're going to need, blockchain's going to have uses in there. You're going to need some new technologies that make this a seamless kind of soup or lake, whatever you want to call it, that we play, you know, we, we do IT in. So I do think it's real. I, I don't think it's as powerful today as some people think it is. I don't think it's ready for prime time as some people think it is today. But I think it will be. I think it's going to be. I think it has to be. All right. Well, if there's a Web 3 and there's a Web 2, there's probably a Web 4 in our future as well. You just got to think about how all these things might come together. And it's certainly... You know, Mike, I take it one day. So here, let me just give you one other thing, too. In all my years, here's a lesson I've learned in technology. Anyone who wants to look at a crystal ball and try to tell me what's going to happen more than three years out is full of malarkey, full of beans, right? There's nothing. You can't... We just, you know, it's like the, it's like seeing the face of God. We, we don't, you know, we, we can't put our hand on that. So, yeah, there'll be a Web 4050. Who knows when and if we'll be here. Even then, I remember a fellow told me a long time ago, he said, never mistake a clear view for a short distance. So there you go. Uh -huh. <laughs> that, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's a good one. Yep. All right. Let's move on to our final topic. Open source sure. is moving beyond code. We have an yeah. interview where we're talking to folks about how uh, clinical researchers are using the open source model to develop drugs and be more innovative. And my question to you is, do you think this open source model is going to move beyond code and it's going to be kind of become the way we innovate across everything? So first of all, let me say this. I think open source and the open source community is the juice, is the energy source that's driving a lot of our world in technology today. You know, I, I was just in Israel this past week for uh, Yala DevOps, and I had a chance to meet with a bunch of Israeli companies. Man, if it ain't open source, they're not interested. And I think that's true in Asia. I think it's true in Africa. I think it's true in Europe. I think it's true in South America, and I think it's also pretty darn true here in North America. Open source is the lingua franca for technology. Now, open source software, we've seen open source hardware, right? You have microfabs and macrofabs and stuff, and they're using kind of open plans to, to print out stuff. I, but I think when we start talking about open source, like business models lending to some of the things you're talking about, if I substituted the word crowdsourced, would you blink an eye? Is it the same thing? Are we, is that what we're really talking about? 
like just sharing everything, crowdsourcing it. And, and then, you know, from a business model, companies build on top of that crowdsourced foundation and they build, you know, the facade or the look that they want from a proprietary point of view. But, you know, the, the, the skeleton, if you will, is a crowdsourced or slashed open source type of foundation. Yeah, you could probably think about building cars with that model, and then you're just customizing the last mile. Yeah. Right? I think we will. I mean, let's face it, when we look at the world car market, I'm never sure about the Chinese guys. I know there's a lot of them, but I'm not familiar. But, you know, the world car market's consolidated into what, about a dozen companies? Right, we all, we have we have the big three in America. You, Germany really has three now too. Right, there's the BMW Group, the Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche Group, and Mercedes. Uh, Tata owns a bunch of the English brands, right? And I think a Chinese company owns Volvo, right? And they, so there's not a lot of car companies, and there is a tremendous amount. I think, especially as we move into these EV markets. There's a tremendous amount of kind of basic technology that they all share. And then they all decide how to make it pretty from there. Yeah, I think they used to call it a joint venture. I think the world now is going to be, you know, a multi-party joint venture around some sort of open source license. And it may be different by industry, but the upside is the pace of innovation is about to increase. Hey, Alan, as always, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Mike, it's always a pleasure. I uh, hope to see you in person soon and uh, keep up the great work at Digital CXO. All right. And thank you all for listening to our show on the Digital CXO website. You can find this episode as well as all our other episodes with links to stories we discussed today. And you can follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you all next time.